Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come to Thee once more, and we thank Thee that we know that whenever we come and seek Thy face, and come by the blood of Jesus Christ, Thy Son, Thou art ever ready and willing to receive us. We thank Thee that Thou hast given us this abundant assurance in Thy Word. And so we come this afternoon, conscious again of our need. We therefore submit ourselves to Thee. We pray Thee, O Lord, that we may all be imbued with this one desire, to know Thee and to live to the praise of the glory of Thy grace, and to make known the truth concerning Thee as it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We therefore pray Thee to bless us as we consider how best we can do these things, and so minister to Thy glory. Hear us, O Lord, pardon us all our imperfection, especially our imperfection in connection with these holy things, but pardon and forgive us our every sin as we ask these mercies, pleading nothing but the name and the merit of thy dear Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are considering, as you remember, the actual preparation of the sermon. And uh, we left off at the point at which we have discovered the main message, what the verse of the passage is really saying. Then, having done that, uh, you must proceed to state this in the original context, that's to say, in its actual context and application. For instance, it might be uh, in its application to the particular church to whom the uh, epistle was written, and so on. Show its original context and application. But then go on to show that this uh, is the statement at the same time of a general principle that is always valid. It applied then in those special circumstances but it's a principle, a spiritual principle, that applies always. So bring that out, show that, that it hasn't merely a temporary, local application, but a more general one. And then I always feel that, having done that, it is good to enforce this or reinforce this by showing parallels in other places in the scriptures. This, I believe, is a very valuable and a very important thing, that you buttress a principle which you find in a text by similar statements in other portions of the scripture, so that it isn't something isolated. This, of course, is the right thing to do for many, many reasons. Uh, heretics have generally been people who've got hold of an idea out of a particular statement and have partly misinterpreted it and then have allowed it to run away with them instead of checking it with other portions of Scripture. It's, it's strengthening to the, to the listener always to see that this is sound and solid biblical teaching. So you look for these parallels and say elsewhere you'll find the same thing stated in somewhat different circumstances perhaps, but the same point. And then having done that, you come and show its relevance for today and for the immediate people to whom you're preaching and uh, its application uh, to today and the situation in which we find ourselves. Now, I would call all that the introduction to the sermon. That is uh, leading up to your handling of this theme or this matter or this principle which you've discovered in this way. Now, I want to immediately to say this, that while I believe that that is the procedure one should adopt in general, I hasten to say that uh, surely there's nothing wrong in varying it at times. In other words, sometimes you may start with the situation today and outline and delineate that. And then say, well now, what of the scriptures to say about this? It isn't that uh, you've actually arrived at it like that in your own preparation, but it's sometimes a good way of putting it. If there's some acute condition that has arisen 
in the church or in your local church or in general, it's not a bad way of doing it sometimes. It's, it will arrest interest, it will focus attention. It will certainly enable them to see very clearly that this isn't something theoretical and academic which you're doing. So you might at times do that. Start with a statement of the position and then show that passage you're dealing with deals with this very thing. It's very useful in this way that it shows that the scriptures are always contemporary. They're never out of date. And that really you never need go beyond them in order to deal with a situation. It's reinforcing this whole notion that your preaching is always something that comes out of the scriptures. So uh, while I am indicating what I would advocate as a general habit and practice, I am also saying that we mustn't become slaves to any method, but that we must always be in this free condition where we are prepared to have variations for the sake of the proclamation of the truth. Now then, here you've arrived then at this thing, this principle, this teaching that you want to put before them. So the next step is that you now divide this up into propositions or heads, headings, call it what you like. Um, and there are a number of things that one's uh, got to say about this. Uh, perhaps I'd better t deal with, first of all, the numerical question. There are some people who are absolute slaves in this respect. You must have three heads, and three only. And if you don't have three heads, you're a bad preacher. If you have more than three, you're an equally bad preacher. This is something, of course, quite ridiculous, but you'd be amazed how easily one falls into habits and become the slave of a tradition. Uh, I was certainly brought up in this tradition that uh, always introduction and three heads. And people looked for them and uh, this, was, this was the custom. Now, I think this is really being quite ridiculous. Uh, one of the greatest uh, preachers that the denomination I was brought up in, the Welsh Presbyterian Church, their greatest preacher undoubtedly was one of the founders, a man called Daniel Rowland, and the accounts of his sermons say that he might have as many as ten headings to a sermon. And one man described him as, uh, that listening to him was like watching an apothecary, as he put it, with a number of bottles uh, with wonderful perfume in them, and he'd take the first bottle and take the stopper out, the cork out, and this wonderful aroma would be wafted over the congregation. Then he'd put that bottle down and take up the second, do the same. And there would be as many as ten. Well, I'm simply telling you this uh, to try to enforce the point that we must not be slaves in this matter. Uh, I'm, I'm saying this because uh, I do find that a number of younger men uh, today uh, who uh, have become interested in preaching anew, and that's a very good and an excellent thing, are tending to, to, to become too mechanical in this whole matter. However, let's come to something more important. Uh, the important thing about these heads is that uh, they must be there in your text and they must arise naturally out of it. That's the important thing. This question of uh, dividing into heads, as I'm going to show you, is not as easy as it may sound. Some people seem to be gifted with an unusual facility in this respect. You may have come across volumes of sermons by a man called Alexander McLaren, who was a famous Baptist preacher at the end of the last century and the beginning of this. People used to say of Alexander McLaren that he seemed to have a kind of golden hammer in his hand, and that he just tapped a text, and it immediately divided itself up into the inevitable heads. Very well. It's not given to many of us to have this golden hammer. <clears throat> but uh, what it does uh, bring out is that these divisions must arise naturally. So let me put this negatively because it's so important. Never force, never force a division. This inevitability is the great thing. Don't force it. And don't add to it either for the sake of some kind of completeness 
that you have in your mind. Let me tell you a story in order to ridicule this notion that you must have three heads. And also at the same time to warn you against this addition. There was a quaint old preacher whom I just remember. I can't remember hearing him, but I certainly remember seeing him and heard many stories concerning him. He was an, a true eccentric. There have been such men in the ministry at various times. There may still be an occasional one. Um, but this man literally did this on one occasion. His text was, And Balaam arose early and saddled his ass. You remember the incident. Now then, we come to the headings. Um, first, he said, A good tray in a bad character. Balaam arose early. Early rising is a good thing. So that's the first term. Secondly, the antiquity of saddlery. Sa 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 saddled his ass, you see. So that uh, saddlery was not something modern and new. It was something quite ancient. And then the inspiration seemed to have finished. Couldn't think of another. And yet, you see, you must have three heads to a sermon. So this is how he, it eventually he announced his, his headings. A good trained, bad character. The antiquity of saddlery. Thirdly and lastly, a few remarks concerning the woman of Samaria. <laughs> well, uh, no, that, that, that literally happened. So I'm saying don't force, don't force your text and don't add to it. Don't be a slave to these mechanical notions. But come along, something still more important. Don't be too clever at this. Don't be too smart. This has been a real curse, I think, in preaching. I don't think it's quite as true today. But uh, certainly, in the earlier part of this century, I know of nothing that probably did greater harm to preaching than this very thing. Clever headings. Uh, smart. Uh, and a man showing his cleverness, of course. You see, that one of the great dangers always facing the preacher, I hope to deal with this later on, is the terrible danger of professionalism. And I have heard men, ministers, when they meet with one another, uh, sort of, uh, instead of uh, swapping uh, jokes like the men of the world do, they, they would sort of meet and say, now, well, what do you think of this? What, what do you think of the, the following headings to a, to a verse? And they'd exchange these and almost have a competition. It became a matter of small talk. Now, that's professionalism, and we're all subject to it. But I think it's very bad, thoroughly bad, from every standpoint. We should never handle the Word of God like that. So avoid cleverness and smartness. The people will detect this, and they'll know that you're more interested in yourself than in the truth if you do that sort of thing. And then, of course, uh, it's kind of a subdivision of this. Apt alliteration's artful aid. You know the men who, when they get their headings, they must all start with the same letter of the alphabet. Three B's or three M's. Or, uh, they must have this alliterative quality about them. I, I don't suppose we are entitled to say that this is wrong, but I'm sure it's a snare to many men. Because in order to get the third one to start with the same letter as the other two, they have to manipulate it just a little bit, just to get it in. That's the thing I'm saying that you mustn't do. And if you're so concerned about your alliteration that you have to do this, well, it's, you better not indulge in this alliteration at all. But there is a, a kind of preacher, and it's generally the sort of uh, people who like to call themselves devotional preachers and preachers who are interested in the higher life and so on, they've been the greatest sinners in this respect always, in getting these clever, smart, alliterative headings. In other words, I sum it all up by saying this. There must never be any artificiality in this matter, but there should always be inevitability. That's the thing. Let it be inevitable. So that when people hear what you're saying, they'll see that it arises inevitably out of the passage of the verse with which you're dealing.
there are many points about this that uh, I would in indicate. Here's one of them. Take time over this. Take time over it, because the whole purpose of dividing it up in this way is to make it easier for the people to take in the truth and to assimilate it. That's your sole reason for doing it. We're not believers in art for art's sake. You're doing it really to help the people, and therefore it should be done well. The question of the form of the summon to which I've referred previously also comes in at this point. And that is why I say you should take time over this, that sometimes you'll find that it's extremely difficult to get it. You, you, you've got your message, and, and you're beginning to see this form in which you're going to present it, but you can't quite get your divisions to your own satisfaction. Now, I advocate taking great care of this, and not rushing it, and not forcing it. And one finds that one has to know oneself in this matter, and as you do so, you will find that many things will help you. I was making the point the other afternoon, you remember, that a man's got to know himself and his own temperament and so on, and his own differing conditions and states, and he's got to treat himself accordingly. And very often I found that in struggling like this to get this thing into the right uh, division and to have this ultimate right form, you get into a kind of mental tangle, uh, and, and you can't think, and you become tense. And uh, you can spend hours trying to do it, and you won't be able to do it. Well, it's wonderful how uh, you get release in, in various ways. I think that at this point, what happens to us is something that can happen to a man who's not a Christian at all and who's not spiritual. Um, I don't know whether I've referred in, at all in passing to a book by Arthur Kerstler, published a few years back with the title, The Act of Creation. He's not interested in what we're discussing, of course, but he was interested in the way the great scientific discoveries are made, particularly. But also interested in, in poetry and so on, the act of creation. And one of the big points he makes is this, that it is generally the case with the most notable scientific discoveries that they have not been discovered as the result of a logical process of thinking. That has come into it. But the big things, he says, have generally come, have been given. That it isn't the case that the scientist has gone from step to step and then arrived at the ultimate step. Now, I remember one illustration very well, and I'm saying this because I think you'll find it of help to you and of value. I remember the story he tells about uh, Poincaré, who was the president of the French Republic and also prime minister of France more than once. He was a great mathematician. And uh, at one stage he was working on some mathematical problem, and he'd been at it for months. And he couldn't get it. He'd got so far he couldn't get any further. He knew there was an ultimate, but he couldn't arrive there. And he'd got to feel a bit stale and so on, so he'd gone off to stay at a small seaside village, partly to have a change of air and for the good of his health and so on. And uh, had also taken his work with him, thought he'd do a bit now and again. And this had been going on for some time. He now had reached a point when he felt he must pay a visit to Paris and consult some of his colleagues in order to get further help about this ultimate solution to the problem. And this is what happened. He uh, had to take a little bus from this little village uh, to a kind of country county town where he would get a larger bus that would take him so far and then the final bus. Well, now this was what happened. When his little local bus got into this first town, it had been delayed en route so that when he arrived, he saw the bus that he'd have to take on the verge of starting. And he saw it was going to be a very near thing. So he hurriedly picked up his bag and he ran as fast as he could and just managed to get hold of the rail on the back of this bus and landed with his two feet on the platform at the end. As the two feet arrived there, suddenly the solution to the problem appeared before him. That's just a fact. And that is the sort of thing that happens. It's a most astonishing thing, this. I find it a very fascinating study. Uh, I've had this sort of experience more than once. I well remember one occasion when I was struggling with a text and could not get it 
divided and ordered to my satisfaction. And you see, this is important in this way. I don't know what is the case with you people, but as far as I'm concerned, if a thing isn't clear in my head, I can't preach it to others. I could stand up and talk, but I'd probably muddle them rather than help them. If I'm not clear about it, if it isn't ordered in my own thinking, well, how can I possibly help others to sit and listen to it? So this is very important, and I'm advocating that you should struggle with this until you get it. And I remember on one occasion I was struggling with the text and spent a whole morning and couldn't get it. My wife then called me to lunch and I went, and at that time, this is many years ago, there, there was a man giving a, a program of uh, new gramophone records for the week. And uh, we used to like listening to this while having our lunch, and he put on two or three records and made no difference to me. Then he announced that he was going to put on a record of two very famous singers singing a very well-known duet. And he put it on. This hadn't been going long with these two superb voices singing, that I was first of all tremendously moved and pleased by it. And then immediately, the thing I'd been struggling with for hours throughout the morning was entirely resolved. Everything fell into place at once. The moment the record finished, I just rushed to my study and got it down as quickly as I could, trusting that I hadn't forgotten or missed anything. That kind of release. I go as far as this, and I've done this many times. When I've been unable to get this kind of division to my own satisfaction with a given text, Rather than preach it in this unsatisfactory manner, I have put it aside and taken another text and more or less made a sermon on this other text. Rather than ruin this other thing, which I feel has been given to me and which I feel has got something special about it, which God is likely to honor in the preaching and which is likely to help the people, Rather than ruin something which one feels is going to be better than usual, or mar it, or deliver it imperfectly, put it aside. I put things like that aside for a week, or a fortnight, or even more, and I've come back to it. And only when I've had this satisfaction about the thing have I taken it, and have I preached it. Very well. Don't spoil something which you feel within yourself is going to be good. Sermons vary tremendously, and you'll have a feeling at times that this is going to be one of the best sermons you've ever prepared in your life. And if you have that feeling, well, don't spoil it, don't ruin it, take time over it. Very well, but now that's this question then of dividing into heads and so on. Uh, I take up this next point, it's perhaps hardly worth mentioning, you may think. But again, I've known people who absolutely insist upon your announcing these headings immediately at this point before you go on to deal with point number one see that was the old tradition you'll find that the puritans did it a man like spurgeon invariably did it he, he said now with this matter divides itself up like this so we can look at this and then he announces the heads all together at first then he says now coming to the first well now i've tended to be a bit of a rebel at this point again because People have become mechanical over this. And I've sometimes felt it's bad for the congregations. I've said so many times, I must go on saying it right away through. As long as one is preaching, as long as one lives as a preacher, one is always in a battle. And the battle is the battle between the substance and the form. Both, of course, are essential, but there's a kind of fight going on between them. And while I have asserted as strongly as I can the importance of form, I want also equally to assert the danger of allowing the form to become the master of the substance. So this repetition, uh, this uh, stating of the headings at that particular point altogether, then taking it up, I think it's often trained the people badly to have a kind of mechanical interest in what is being preached. And so, the mechanics become more important 
than anything else. Very well, you've arrived at this point. Well now, this is preparation, remember. And I say that again at this point you should check what you've done up to this point by your commentaries and so on. You've already been consulting them about the exactness of the meaning of the words and the context and so on. Come back again and check what you have imagined the message is and the way you've divided it and make sure that you're all right, just for the sake of accuracy once more. And so you now have prepared your skeleton and you've seen to it that it leads to a kind of climax or to an application, which is the whole point and purpose of your sermon and of preaching. Now, of course, you can do this, you see, in one of two ways. There are some people who do all this in their minds without writing anything at all. I would urge the importance of putting this on paper. I mean this division, this skeleton, which you've prepared in this way. I think it's better because I, I think you'll find it'll stimulate you as well. But there are people who can think inwardly as it was once described. We've got different ways of thinking and we're all different in this matter. Uh, some people think best as they're speaking. Some people think best as they're writing. And it is said that the salt of the earth think inwardly. Well, find out which you are. But make sure that you're right in your categorizing. Um, I think it's on the whole true for most of us that it's good to put it down on paper. I've known many a men get a good idea and uh, because this had sort of thrilled it when it came, it thrilled him when it came to him, he thought all was well. But when he came to preach it, he hadn't got as much as he thought he had. Put it down on paper. Now then, having arrived at this point, you're face to face with a major decision. What is it? Well, the major decision now is this. What are you going to do with this skeleton that you've prepared? And there are two main possibilities open to you. Should this be written out in full, or shouldn't it? And again, it seems to me the only sane thing to say is that you must not lay down absolute laws about this matter. Because you will find that your laws are contradicted by what has happened in history. Now a man like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great preacher, he didn't write his sermons. He just uh, had this sort of skeleton. And uh, he didn't approve of writing sermons in general. He would write articles and so on. But he didn't write sermons. On the other hand, Dr. Thomas Chalmers, the Free Church of Scotland, found that he had to write his sermons completely. He tried many times to be an extemporary preacher, but felt he was a, a complete failure. He just couldn't do it. He had to write his sermons out in full. And, of course, the result of that has been that that has continued as a tradition in Scotland until today. He was the man who started it. There had been preachers in Scotland before him who didn't write their sermons and were good extemporary preachers. But Chalmers was a great man. He was the leader in, in the disruption of 1843. And so he started a whole tradition. This is the sort of thing that always happens. However, Chalmers had to have his sermon written in full. Jonathan Edwards is interesting in this respect. I always had the impression that Edwards always wrote out all his sermons in full. And it's quite certain that in his early days he did so. And furthermore, you know, he would even read them. You read the story of him standing in his pulpit with a candle in one hand and his manuscript in the other. And that was his way of preaching. But I was interested to find a couple of years ago, when I had the privilege of meeting the two men who were republishing his works now in the, the library at Yale University, they have got all his manuscripts there. And I was very interested to see that as he went on, he didn't write his sermons in full. He would only write some notes. He obviously varied as he went on. What a wise man he was, that, that he should do this. However, I say then, don't lay down an absolute law. Once more, every man's got to know himself, and he's got to decide for himself. However, I say then, don't lay down an absolute law. Once more, every man's got to know himself, and he's got to decide for himself. What I believe is always important, though, is that you preserve freedom. Freedom. This 
element of freedom is all important, yet at the same time you must have order, coherence and so on. You see, you're always in this position between these two extremes. You're on this sort of knife edge. But I would suggest this. What is, what is wrong with combining both these methods, the written and the extemporary? I believe it's a very good thing to do this. Certainly, it's uh, what I did myself for my first ten years in the ministry. I tried to write one sermon per week. I never tried writing two. Never. But I, I did try to write one for the first ten years. I felt it was good for discipline, uh, for ordered thought, and arrangement, and sequence, and development of the argument, and so on. So, you see, I was really doing the two things. My particular practice was this, and I, 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 I would be prepared to defend this. You may ask me, which of the two did you write? Well, I've already told you that, as far as I'm concerned, I used to divide my ministry, and I still do. In the morning, general edification of the saints. In the evening, more evangelistic. You can reverse them if you like. I don't care which you do, as long as one of them is evangelistic every week. I want to go on repeating that. Well, my practice was to write my evangelistic sermon for the reason that in speaking to the saints, to the believers, one could uh, feel more relaxed when was speaking in the, in the realm of the family and so on. In other words, I believe that you should be unusually careful in your evangelistic addresses. That is why this notion that a fellow who is merely gifted with a certain amount of self-confidence and cheek can make an evangelist is all wrong. It's the greatest men who should be the evangelists. And the idea that Tom, Dick and Harry can be put up to speak on a street corner, but you must have a great preacher in a pulpit in a church, I think is reversing the right order. It's there you need to be most careful. And therefore I used to write that kind of sermon and not the other. However, I'm simply suggesting that there's no need to be over dogmatic or rigid about this, but to do the two things. And you notice that I say that for the first ten years, that was the procedure. Then as I went on, as others, I wrote less and less and less. And now, by now I can't remember when I last wrote a sermon. However, that's, that's it. You, you've just got to know yourself and be honest with yourself and do what you regard as being most effective. However, whether you write your sermon in full or whether you don't, and preach in a more extemporary manner. What is really important always is that you never just preach your skeletons. These skeletons have got to be clothed. They need to have flesh upon them. You see, we come back again to this thing that I'm emphasizing all along, this form that the sermon has. The sermon is not just a collection of statements. It has this other quality about it, this form, this wholeness. And the sole reason for this is that it is helpful to the people. It's not art for art's sake, I say again. It is best and helpful for the people. You can put it like this if you like. A scaffolding is essential in putting up a building. But uh, when you look at the completed building, you don't see the scaffolding. You see the building. There is a structure there, but the structure is covered. It's only there as something to help you to put up the building that you desire. The same thing exactly is true of the human body. There is this frame, this skeleton, but it's clothed. And it's very important we should realize this about a sermon. I remember a youngish preacher, a very able man who taken a first in his theology in Oxford and so on, telling me how he was preaching once with an old preacher, a great old preacher, who was a kindly man, and the old preacher, having heard the younger man three or four times, he said to him, you know, he said, you bring very good pedigree cattle to the market. He said, it's a pity that their bones are so obvious. They haven't got enough flesh on them. And the man, he says, who goes to the market to buy an animal, he doesn't want to buy a skeleton. He likes to see the skeleton well covered and clothed. Flesh. You don't buy bones, you want meat. 
you see. So th this is so important. You don't just throw facts at people, throw thoughts, skeletons. Take time to clothe them. Very well. While I emphasize that, I now have to come to what I would call some of the dangers of writing sermons. The reason for writing them is that you want to clothe the skeleton. But you've got to be careful immediately. There are certain dangers and snares in connection with writing. And the first is, of course, a too ornate style. Too much attention paid to the literary quality or the literary element. This is a very interesting matter from the standpoint of the history of preaching. Men in the church seem to have gone through phases with regard to this matter. If any of you are interested in the 17th century, and you should be, because it's a great century, quite apart from the fact that it was the century in which the Pilgrim Fathers came to this country, it's, it's a great century from every standpoint. Uh, you will know that at the beginning of that century there were certain so-called classical preachers in the Church of England. Bishop Andrews, the famous Jeremy Taylor, and people like that, and John Donne up to a point. Now these men were regarded and acclaimed as great preachers, and of course in many senses they were. And yet, it seems to me, as it did especially to the Puritans at that time, that they'd gone too far in a certain direction. The sermons had become works of art. They were literary masterpieces, perfectly constructed, wonderful literary, classical allusions, everything to perfection. And the result was that the people in general were more or less ignorant of uh, saving truth, of the real truths of the scriptures, but went to listen to these ornate, perfect sermons. Now, the Puritans brought a tremendous reaction in against this, and they did it quite deliberately. They felt that these perfect sermons were concealing the truth, whereas the whole point of a sermon is to declare the truth. See, you're always in this tension. And uh, the best way perhaps I can bring this point uh, home to you is to tell you the story concerning Thomas Goodwin, one of the greatest of the Puritans. Thomas Goodwin was a naturally eloquent man. And when he had, was a student and a young man at Cambridge University, there was a very famous orator, eloquent preacher in the university. And Thomas Goodwin admired him tremendously. This was his model, his ideal of a preacher. And he was modeling himself on this man and on his method. But then Thomas Goodwin had a very great and profound religious experience that changed his whole outlook and affected him very profoundly. But he had a great struggle as the result of this. He was asked to preach the university sermon. And of course, instinctively, he began preparing and writing after this classical manner, what he'd formerly admired and liked, you see. And he'd produced a great sermon, wonderful purple patches, and so on, which had thrilled him and had moved him as he'd thought of them and as he'd written them. But then the Spirit of God and his own conscience began to work within him. And he went through a terrible time what should he do? He knew perfectly well that in this congregation not only would there be the learned people of the university, but some ordinary people, perhaps some servant maids even, they used to attend on these occasions. And Thomas Goodwin now knew that he'd got to preach to those servant maids as well as to the others. And he knew that these purple patches would not only mean nothing to these ordinary people, but might, even might be a hindrance. And he had this awful struggle with himself. And at last, with his heart almost bleeding and breaking, he excised the purple patches and never delivered them. In the interests of the truth, in the interests of the communication of the gospel. Surely, he was undoubtedly right. Undoubtedly right. You see, this thing can carry you away, and this ornate style can be a menace. And... Uh, there, there's a good deal of 
a tendency, I feel, even today, to hanker after this. Uh, I read a, a few years back, or perhaps it's 15 years by now, uh, a man writing an account of the disruption of 1843 to which I've referred, and Thomas Chalmers, he ventured to criticize Chalmers, Chalmers' preaching, and his criticism was this, that there was uh, an unfortunate absence of literary and historical allusions in Chalmers' preaching. The little prig, the little pedant, venturing to make such a criticism. But you see, he has this artificial, artistic view of this matter. Or let me put it to you in another way. There was a man, a bishop of the Church of England called Hensley Henson. You may have read his autobiography in two volumes. He gave it the title, A Diary of an Unimportant Life. And it took, and it took two volumes to state the unimportance. But I remember in reading this, how he describes on one occasion, how he spent three weeks writing a sermon, which he'd got to deliver on some great occasion. And he tells you there how he labored with this and rewrote portions and changed other portions, added three weeks to get this perfection to the sermon. Now, surely this is something which one finds it very difficult to reconcile with the preaching of the gospel as one sees it in the scriptures themselves or as one sees it in the great periods in the history of the church. This polishing of phrases, this writing and rewriting, what's it really got to do with truth? Now, you, you notice that I sound as if I'm contradicting myself, but what I'm trying to show you is that you've got to walk always between these two extremes. There must be form. There mustn't be too much form. But can you conceive of the Apostle Paul spending three weeks to prepare one sermon, polishing phrases, changing a word here and there, putting in another adjective instead of this one, and so on? I suggest the thing is inconceivable. Not with wisdom of words, says the Apostle. Not with enticing words of man's wisdom. How easily we go from one extreme to the other. So I put it in general by saying that we must be always careful to avoid this over or ornate style. Perhaps it isn't as much of a danger today because people are not as interested in preaching as they used to be. And I'm quite certain that it was this over-attention to the mere literary style towards the end of the last century and the beginning of this one that has done so much grievous harm to the whole cause of preaching. Very well, we leave it at that. Then we come to this question of quotations. Quotations. And, um, well, this one again can be quite an involved and a difficult matter. Uh, I think there's a tendency for this danger to be more acute today than the previous one. This is because we all think we are more learned. And we think that the congregations are, and they probably are, better educated, have more knowledge, and so on. And so the idea gradually slips in that uh, the proof of learning is the number of quotations. Uh, this, of course, is true, as you know, in the writing of books and so on. How do you decide whether a man's a scholar or not? The simple answer is the number of footnotes. If he hasn't any footnotes, he's not a scholar, he's not a thinker. If he has many, he must be. This, of course, is just ridiculous. Quite ridiculous. What we should be interested in is a man's quality of mind, his capacity for thinking, and his originality, not the number of footnotes. But this is the whole tendency at the present time. And when this comes into preaching, it becomes a real menace. I, I, I think nothing can militate more against true preaching than this. Why do I say this? Well, one thing is this. The whole object of quotations is not to show you are learning or to call attention to yourself. If it is, you'd better not use a single quotation. Your motive is wrong immediately. <coughs> I remember a man 
had a vogue for a few years as a popular preacher in Great Britain. This literally happened. One of the men's students told me this. He happened to be a principal, a president of a, of a college, a theological college, and he was asked to preach a sermon on the radio. And he was given due notice, of course, in two months' time or so. He spent six weeks in reading through the Oxford book of religious verse. What for? To get a striking quotation to start the sermon with. I, again, can only use one word with regard to this. That's prostitution. <laughs> he not only did this himself, he got some of his favorite students to do the same thing. Urged upon them to read poetry. If they could, he told them more or less what he was going to preach on. Could they think of some striking quotation to start off with? Now, this, this to me is an abuse of quotations. Why, why is this wrong then? Well, I say it's wrong for this reason, that the form again becomes more important than the substance. The form is meant to be the servant of the substance. I remember a phrase once which uh, impressed me very much in this very connection. This man was writing and he's, he was drawing the distinction and showing us the difference between what he called the artifice of artistry and the inevitability of art. That's the thing. You see, artistry falls back on artifices. And you see the men striving and straining to give this impression. The great thing about the artist, the true artist always, is inevitability. You feel it couldn't have been anything else. There's something artificial about the other. It is an artifice. We must never be guilty of that. We must always make sure of this quality of inevitability. It's not for me to lay down rules on this matter. But I would say that on the whole it is a good thing to avoid the misuse of books of quotations. The only real legitimate use of a book of quotations as I see things is this, that it's there to check what I think is, a, is, is an accurate quotation. It's there to save time for me. In other words, you don't sort of uh, look for a particular heading in your book of quotations in order that you may have a quotation. No, as you are thinking or writing, something comes to your mind. And you say, so-and-so said this. Well, you want to make quite sure that you're right. Check it with your book of quotations. You don't start with your book of quotations. It's artificial. It's mechanical again. And it's a lazy man's way of doing it in any case. Then uh, I would even say this. Don't try to think of quotations. Don't try to do so. If you do, again, you see the mechanics of being too obvious and too prominent in your whole method. In other words, only use a quotation when it comes to your mind and when it seems to you to be inevitable. Or, if you like, only use a quotation when it seems to say perfectly the thing that you were trying to say. It says it better than you can say it. It says it, in a sense, in an almost perfect manner. You may think I'm making too much of this quotation question. I'm not. I can assure you that I'm not. Too many quotations become very wearisome to the listener. And at times they can even be ridiculous. Uh, I remember having a conversation one day with, with a man who had been professor of poetry at Oxford and was also a canon of Westminster Abbey in London. And we were talking about this very thing. And he told me that the previous week he'd literally heard this being said in a sermon in Westminster Abbey in London. This learned preacher with a mass of quotations showing his profound reading said at one point in his sermon, as Evelyn Underhill has been reminding us recently, God is love. <laughs> you see, that's, that's it. How ridiculous can you be? Everything's got to be in the form of a quotation. And so it, you get to this ridiculous position when you are concealing the truth and 
holding yourself up to ridicule and you're disgusting the people. The sermon is meant to be a proclamation of the truth of God as mediated through you. People don't want to listen to a string of quotations what other people have thought. They've come to listen to you. You're the man of God. You've been called to the ministry. You've been ordained. And they want to hear this great truth as it's coming through you, through the whole of your being. It's passed through your thought. It's part of your experience. They want this authentic personal note. And I can assure you that if your sermons are but a string of quotations, some, probably the more ignorant people will say what a learned man that was. Uh, the others will know exactly what you're doing because they do the same thing themselves and you'll have no credit. But what is invariably true is this, that there will be no power in your preaching. I can guarantee you that. There is never any power in these sermons that consist simply of uh, as so-and-so has said and uh, uh, so-and-so has reminded us and so on and one after another out and out it comes and you feel that this man has allowed his reading to become a substitute for his thinking and we are meant to think primarily and all that you read is simply to stimulate your thought and to give you a, a certain amount of information very well so let's be careful then about this whole question of quotations the yeah, next thing I would mention is be careful, this is still, you see, when you're writing, be careful of too close reasoning. I've emphasized in general at the beginning that, not today, but in my original outline of the importance of reasoning and development and sequence, but don't make it too close, because this is going to be spoken. And it's not as easy to follow a very closely woven, reasoned argument when you're listening to it as when you're reading it. So if you go too far in that respect, you're hindering the people from receiving the truth. This can apply also to extemporary preaching, but it is a particular danger, I feel, in connection with written sermons. So I close for this afternoon, I believe a class is to follow, by saying this. Prepare, but beware of the danger of over-preparation. This is particularly true of, of written sermons. The danger is to be too perfect. You've got your ideal, you see, of what you want to do. But the danger is that you will overdo it, and it becomes an end in itself. How do you avoid this? What's the antidote? It's perfectly simple. Keep on reminding yourself right away through, from beginning to end, that this is meant for people, for all sorts and kinds of people. You are not preparing a sermon for a congregation of professors. You're preparing a sermon for a mixed congregation of people. And it is your business and mine to be of some help to everybody that is in that congregation. And we have failed unless we have done that. So avoid this over-academic theoretical notion. Be practical. Remember the people you're preaching to them. We leave it at that for today. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.